You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, we're pleased today to have John Ellis, who is a former columnist for the Boston Globe. He's worked at News Corp. He has a little piece of history that we're going to talk about related to the 2000 election at the end of this interview. But mainly, we're going to speak about his interesting article that he wrote about modern-day Jacksonians and how they're fueling um, the shape of America's politics in many ways. Uh, he has some interesting insight on that. I don't think I've discussed enough in the various episodes of, that I've had this year. There are some politics going on, and this is a show that does history on politics. It's not an interview show. We're not changing formats by any means. I'll have another episode on Thursday, which will tell the story, a uh, deeper story about the Iran hostage crisis of 1980. But today I did want to talk about some current politics. And so you see uh, former President Trump, rising both in the polls for the GOP primary and caucuses and also for even the general and inching up over President Biden. I do believe those polls are early. John's going to have some insight into what's fueling that. Um, We just had that episode about the 1980 Iowa caucus and George Bush's surprise win over Ronald Reagan and how he could have almost uh, toppled everything and perhaps gotten the nomination himself. Now, you see the dynamics of Iowa, and the only thing my kind of historical spidey sense is seeing out there is that expectations are so low for the other candidates whose names are not Trump. And it's just always been the case in history that there are surprises in either uh, Iowa or New Hampshire. You see a dynamic between It appears Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis, as one goes up, the other goes down, as they fight for that number two position, who will come in under Trump. Expectations are so low that I think there possibly could be a surprise. It's it's coming up January 15th. The Republican contest will be the only one that's important this year because the Democrats, misguidingly, in my opinion, will have a caucus on January 15th, but cannot reveal the results until March 15th. Okay. Our website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. You may want to go there just to check out some of the past episodes that are there. Our Patreon is patreon.com slash M-H-C-B-U-Y-P. This is now my full-time profession for the time being. And uh, so appreciate any help. You also get some extra episodes. I have some some jottings from a recent visit to the library. And appreciate that help. Remember, too, we've published Fall of USSR as a separate podcast. If you can go and subscribe to that on Apple Podcasts or other platforms, but particularly helpful is Apple Podcasts. If you can rate and review Fall of USSR as this separate entity so that more people can learn about my history can beat up your politics through that source. Thank you. With that, 
we'll get to our interview with John Ellis. So we're speaking with John Ellis. He is a former NBC News political analyst, Boston Globe columnist, business insider, political editor, and News Corp veteran. And in 2016, he launched News Items, that is uh, news-items.com, for political commentary. Um, John, thanks for coming on. Thank you very much for having me. Let's just get right to it, talking about Jacksonians, because you had this very interesting article on your website that talked about Jacksonians as core Trump supporters, kind of explaining some of the Trump phenomenon, not only in 2016, but what's going on right now. Let's talk about them. Who who are, how would you define Jacksonians? And There's a very good essay that uh, my friend Walter Mead wrote for Foreign Affairs after uh, Trump was first elected. And uh, he, he does a good job, a better job than I can of describing uh, the Jacksonian culture, if you will. But uh, basically, American politics, you know, there are all these things about what separates us and so on and so forth. The most important thing, uh, I think, in American politics is where you live. Um, and they, if you think of metropolitan, suburban, exurban, and rural, the Jacksonian base is exurban and rural. And it's less about, uh, you know, usually it's uh, the election of 2016 and 2020 is described, uh, the Trump phenomenon is described as, you know, deindustrialization of the Midwest and political correctness and so on and so forth. But uh, Jacksonian America is really a a, a culture, if you will, mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and that, uh, more than anything else, what it values as opposed to what uh, the, quote, elites value are very different. Um, and I think the two major uh, components of that, if you will, are a concept of honor and loyalty. That's a good thought, because one of the first arguments that I will get, or anyone will get oh, Trump was elected because of the Rust Belt or the wage stagnation or the jobs, the squeeze, is, well, in both 2016 and 2020, people under 50000 in income voted Democrat. So it doesn't make sense. And um, they split and battle it out on education levels and other things. But when it comes to just core you know, economics, it's Many blue collars did not vote for Trump and voted for Democrats, and many people making high incomes voted for Trump. So, yeah, it 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 requires something more. Talk a bit about the honor part. Well, I think the there's a sense that uh, the quote elites end quote uh, that have sort of defined the liberal order, if you will, uh, in the post war post World War II era. Um, are their loyalty, uh, is perceived as, uh, being to themselves and not mm-hmm. to the, uh, country that, I mean, this is all a little bit overstated, but sure. they're not, uh, not loyal to Jacksonian America, not loyal to its values, not loyal to its sense of, you know, what the country is about and, you know, it, the classic sort of example of it is I think immigration is an enormously important issue in this election and the last election in the 2016 election. Obviously, Trump ran on the quote wall and quote. 
and that gets assigned the description as racist um, and you know uh, anti-foreign or whatever but it's more about an assault i think it's more the more important thing is the sense that uh their country their place in the country uh the country that they know and love is not is being undermined by by this uh, vast wave of immigration and that they're asserting themselves to saying that's not our country. Our country is our country. Yeah. And uh, you almost, uh, it's not, not so much you, but it really Walter Mead almost, at least my read on it, they're almost isolationist. If you're really talking about this core Jacksonian group and maybe not the next level after that, that still might vote GOP. They seem to be a, um, Hey, Take care of things here in the home first. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's I think that's right. On the on the other hand, if the country is under attack, uh, mm-hmm. then Jacksonian, uh, I mean, war, right? Mm-hmm. The Japanese uh, hit Pearl Harbor, etc. Um, the Jacksonian response to that is a total war. We respond if we come under attack. We, you uh, know, wage total war. And the only acceptable outcome of war is the unconditional surrender of the enemy. Um, If you're not going to fight for the unconditional surrender of the uh, enemy, then what's the point? Don't don't do it. That's a sharp break from 75 years of global order. They taunt and and things. Kissinger just passed away. uh, And uh, we we it's always been why I. Um, editorial side, I've always felt that the argument that Trump and his son and other people on that side of things will make the argument that we're for peace. You know, never find a group. We don't want to start wars like like some of the Democrats or some of the establishment Republicans do. I always feel like that's there's some truth in that and it really should be more explored, particularly on the blue side of politics than it than it is for, you know, he is a guy that legitimately isn't jumping into wars left and right. But I always feel like the reason I'm skeptical of it is that I feel like, yeah, but once he got into a big one, we'd be in it. Um, so he's not he, he's not a pacifist by by any means. And, I, and I'm talking about Trump. My, my uh, sort of uh, example of unconditional surrender is you know, after the atom bomb was dropped on uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, there was understandably a lot of uh, second thoughts or afterthoughts uh, about the morality of that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but not in Jacksonian America. In Jacksonian America, that led to the unconditional surrender of the enemy. And that is always when you engage in a foreign battle. That is the that's the goal. Yeah, I mean uh, Truman, who who oddly enough, I, I mean he's a mix because he also has an urban city boss side of his politics for his legacy. But somebody like I think what a lot of people don't even understand about that situation is Truman really didn't think about it much. In fact, he right. gave the he gave the order to do it to the military already. So this right. idea that he agonized over it. But you're right, um, just uh, a year 
later uh in 46 you have this big book that comes out of hiroshima and has stories and it's a bestseller and it's really from the point of view of the japanese and the suffering and so you yeah you see this uh, immediate um look back at what we did right after that event but i get it in parts of america that we're talking about when i when you say jacksonian my brain goes to scots irish and i certainly don't want to talk about it as a race but more as an ancestry um, there's a certain group, um, Jim Webb wrote a great book on it back in the past, and he got certain states and towns in America where when people fill out their census forms, they'll just put American. And what right. they mean is really they're, you know, some fort of, of Ulster Irish or somebody that passed through there. I, I think there's no doubt about that. I mean, I think the lineage is Scots Irish. I think like one of the uh, interesting things in this article is, you, is you're, as you're just, you're getting into nuance of these people, the Jacksonians versus just a kind of the simple stereotypes people talk about it. One of them is that um, they know Trump is flawed. Oh, yeah. Could you expand on that a bit? I, uh, you know, I, I was taken, um, he's a, I guess a sociologist that we're not supposed to, uh, not supposed to quote, but Charles Murray uh, did uh, was given an interview or something somewhere, and uh, he's he was talking about the Trump uh, electorate, if you will, the people mm-hmm. that elected Trump, uh, and he said they they know perfectly well who he is. They know his flaws. Uh, in many cases, they share his flaws. Um, but the key to Trump is understanding Trump is that he's the murder weapon. And uh, I think that I think that's what he what the purpose he served both in 2016, but also in 2020 uh, and again here in 2023, soon to be 24. There is a elite in Washington that is utterly indifferent to the needs of uh, and in fact, quite scornful of uh, the views and needs of uh, Jacksonian America. Uh, and that it is lined with a lobbyist legal uh, army of people to prevent them from winning any legislative fights, and on and on and on. You know the litany, uh, and Trump uh, was essentially the grenade that they threw into that into that conclave. Um, and yeah, I guess another form. I've always murder weapon sounds extreme, but I get it, and, it, and it's like a form that I say is I, I hear a lot he fights yeah you know, what they used to yeah. say about u.s grant why is he good general he fights now yeah, i mean they, they don't why why put a person they've been running candidates that have lost uh democrats went through the same thing uh carter wins narrow carter loses mondale loses dukakis loses it's time for someone that's gonna win uh, and uh, our our <laughs> it's not exactly equatable, but Clinton's kind of our stealth bomber murder weapon. Uh, if, if one's on the left side of things, like hey, we got a guy that can talk like you a little, and um, and can figure out some of you know some of what to say. Quote the Bible once in a while, and sort of mean it. I mean, to some extent, and re and win Arkansas and Tennessee, you know, and that and right. of course that's the the change. Um, Democratic Party kind of abandon that kind of Clintonian or don't don't try to be Reagan or try to be the key thing to understanding I think to understanding um Clinton is that the bridge to the Republican Party for the Jacksonians was Perot 
Um, uh-huh. And Perot took 19% uh, of the vote in 1992, which enabled Tr- uh, Clinton to win the election outright with 43% of the vote. Perot did less well the next time, uh, 10%. Um, but Clinton won that election with 46% um, of the total vote. Um, so it, it, in the way that Wallace was the bridge from the old democratic coalition mm-hmm. for a big, uh, essentially the, uh, the old Confederacy, uh, for those, uh, for those voters to move from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party, uh, in Clinton's case, um, they, what happened was the, that some element of the Jacksonian constituency departed the H.W. Bush uh, sort of republicanism, if you will, and found its home in the Perot, I guess, movement. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's the thing about Trump is that it isn't, it's not, I, I like to say that Trump is less important now than the movement, that what the movement is interested in is the movement, um, and that Trump is simply the, the weapon that they use to, to make themselves heard. Yeah, so, uh, uh, boy, there's so many ways to um, get into that, and it, it, it really is a lot different than what people talk about daily on on things. There's a lack of understanding of some of these mechanics uh, going on. There seemed to be a movement, which no doubt um, Rupert Murdoch, who has been known to kind of back candidates succession style, right, is uh, it seemed to be, okay, we're going to take DeSantis, we're going to first prop him up when a big re-election as governor, and we're just going to kind of um, ease Donald Trump out of the chair, take the keys away, is the way I almost see it. And, uh, well, that didn't work. I say about Fox News that it's not, uh, the network doesn't program the audience. The audience programs the network. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the people that program the network and the people that own the network had had enough of Trump after he lost in 2020. And the arc, you can hear and read all of the arguments essentially in the Wall Street Journal editorial pages, which is, uh, it's not like Paul Jago, who's the editor of the editorial pages, is, you know, the, the stenographer for Rupert Murdoch, but their, their thinking is, let's put it this way, is very closely aligned. Mm-hmm. And Paul argued after Trump was lost that not only did Trump lose the executive branch, but he lost, he caused the Republicans to lose the House in uh, 2018. And he caused the Republicans to lose the Senate in 2020. And therefore, he was a loser. Uh, and as a loser, he was no longer really of use to the Murdoch empire, if you will. Uh, and they were looking around for somebody to make make sure that Trump went away. And there was Ron DeSantis, who had just won a, you know, a, a stunning re-election, 60% of the vote. He carried Day County. Look, all the, you know, for every, I mean, it just looked all the part of a future presidential candidate and a future president. They were comfortable with him. They liked the fact that he could replace Trump. They liked the fact that he could, you know, adopt a number of the themes that Trump had hit on. And they went all in, you know, the, the famous New York Post headline was not DeSantis. It was the future. And that reflected Fox News, Wall Street Journal editorial page, New York Post, which is sort of the first 
you know, the first responder uh, of the Murdoch uh, media empire. And what happened was they got ahead of their audience, and the audience wasn't quite ready to get rid of Mr. Trump. And when 2022 happened, again, the Democrats surprisingly did much better in the House than anybody thought they would. They held on to the Senate. The Murdoch empire, again, this is overstated, but the Murdoch media conglomerate, if you will, uh, said that there yet again, Trump had caused the Republican Party to lose, and therefore we had to go even further in. Um, I have DeSantis timing wrong, by the way. He was reelected in 2022. Um, but anyway, so right, they, yeah. they, they said... Uh, they said that Trump uh, had caused, yet again, that Trump had caused the Republicans to lose. And so we needed somebody who was elect, you know, electable and all this stuff. And uh, the audience didn't buy it. And uh, the audience wasn't quite ready to let Trump go. And part of that was the disrespect the audience felt, um, the, the disrespect that the audience felt that was being paid uh, or was being exhibited by media uh, generally and the Murdoch media specifically uh, that they, they weren't, you know, they weren't gold watching Trump. They weren't retiring him with praise. And I put it in a column. I said, they want to hear the eulogy before they bury the, bury the guy. And uh, there was no eulogy and that was resented and then Trump came under attack legally um, from the Justice Department and from again from the media and even the closest allies in the media were now attacking him or trying to keep him from being heard, with the exception, obviously, of Sean Hannity. But nowhere else did Trump really didn't appear on Fox News for a long, you know, months and months and months. And uh, the audience wasn't having it. And so they reprogrammed the network and Trump is back. That's basically what happened. You mentioned the indictments. And what about those, though? Um, is is That seems like a big factor from the first New York indictment. He gets a martyr effect, if you will, or some kind of like, right. uh, you know, look, I'm the victim type effect. Uh, and he's beating DeSantis. I mean, some of those early polls were showing DeSantis doing well. Yeah, getting close. There's no doubt. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was sort of a 40-30 situation. Trump had definitely come down from the 50-plus to the you know low 40s, even 39, I remember, in one poll. And DeSantis had sort of shot up in large part because he was being advertised as the next thing. Uh, then Trump, I mean, you can, the, the timing is not exact, but then Trump comes under legal threat. And the, the cases, the first two, the rape case with um, the, the woman who had the, I can't remember her name, but she had a column in Elle magazine and so on and so forth. That seemed to be preposterous to given the time difference, right? I mean, she waited, I think, 30 years or something to bring the case um, so that was deemed to be uh, an unfair attack. And then the real estate case here in New York uh, is really a, a, a mind-boggling because you would think that the banks that were lending him the money didn't have the right to do due diligence. Of course, they did. Um, and they were fine with making the loans. And as a, a friend of mine actually was part of the group that was lending Trump money at, at the time, 
uh, or lending the Trump organization money at the time. And he said, look, he got into trouble. We did the, you know, we saw the due diligence. And what mm-hmm. we did was we got ever better collateral and and uh, in return for giving him the money that he needed to keep going. Had he gone, you know, bust, we would have had fantastic collateral. So anyway, that I mean, case, but once you're a bank, obviously you're subject to federal rules and you've got to uh, do if you, You've you've anyone applying, anyone filling out an application has to present things accurately. Uh, bank has investors that may not be the management and know about all the little right. deals that are being made. So there's all of these like, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't want to let I, don't, I, I do understand, though, that for all of these, there's a particularly the first New York indictment. There's a little element of it. Well, it seems small given the person, but then the other side, you know, given that it's the former president of the United States, it seems small to go on this it's small business. And also, project. I mean, also comparatively, I mean, if, mm-hmm. if Donald Trump is the only one who's overvaluing his real estate holdings, <laughs> uh, I have a bridge to sell you in, in Brooklyn. On one hand, you have the adage, no one's above the law, right? And that's yes, a, a, if there's a, if there's an, a Whig ethic. <laughs> we talked about Jack Jacksonians. If we, if there's a Whig ethic here, it's uh, no one's above the law, and um, and we do our jobs, and the government has to function well and and be fair, and all of those things. And then on the other hand, there's a group of people who are um, you're just doing this because it's Trump, and it's almost almost bound to happen. Um, it, it's. Uh, I do wonder if the indictments didn't happen. Say if we just see uh, DeSantis uh, slowly getting that nomination. Do do you remember when, I know I'm jumping a bit here, but do you remember when Trump first made his announcement, there was kind of a goofiness to it, or there was a lot of criticism of it? I was in Roger Ailes' office when it took place. (laughs) (laughs) I was working uh, for Roger. He had hired me to try to figure out what to do with the Fox Business Network, which was my job. Um, I had consulted with him. I'd never worked at uh, at Fox or at News Corp. Uh, just I'd only done consulting work for them. But in 2014, I think it was, Roger hired me and said, we got to figure out what to do with the business network. And so because as Roger uh you know you were always invited down to talk about politics and and that day i was invited down to uh to look at the trump announcement and uh <laughs> and you know he's he rode down the elevator and i mean it just seemed preposterous and the next day they looked at the ratings and he had doubled the ratings in that time period more than doubled the ratings in that time period and that's when uh fox news channel realized that they had essentially struck gold Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more— 
We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. It's always tough with the Jackson thing. We hear it a lot. It's also tough because he's Trump himself. I mean, he put Jackson up in the White House and put the portrait up in an elevated spot. He's made the, the comparison. Supporters, you know, want that comparison to happen, which always leads to the question, if we're really looking at it, it's like how much of it is, well, yeah, you're a Jacksonian because you want to be Jacksonian, just like if Biden wants to say he's Truman, you know, he can do it and and we can we can start to those associations will start to happen. I see lots of things like obviously anti-establishment, no brainer between the Jackson and between Trump for the purpose, because it is a history show. I think there's a couple of contrasts that we sh- I should point out, at least for the audience that I would see. They may not be as important to people today, but, you know, one would be military experience. I mean, Jackson's strength came from his status as a military hero um tariff he's low tariff donald trump is at least in a depending on the you know for some countries high tariff immigration i mean the part the democratic party at the time jackson was in there relied on a very expansive immigration and and small l liberal immigration policy this one's a little more subjective, but he's a unionist. Of course, everyone's a unionist, so that's a bad argument. But for instance, he wouldn't tolerate like a fire eater type um, uh, politics. And when South Carolina tried that, he nullified. And so there's a lot to Jackson that's, that's, it's always hard to comparisons and contrast. But I think a more relevant one to what we're talking about is simply that Jackson got a popular vote. And Trump right. still, through the two elections, has yet 
to do that. Now, maybe it happens in 2024. People are <laughs> the way polls, current polls, which I think are early, we can look at the people and say they're Jacksonians. It's harder to look at Trump and say he's Jackson. No, yeah. I mean, it, he doesn't fit the, the, the mold. It's more uh, he fits the culture. Um, and that's that he tapped into that he understands i think that's the that trump has a very uh almost feral understanding of uh of what drives modern populism in the united states and uh but you're right i mean jackson what 56 percent of the vote um trump will never get 56 percent of the vote he'll win the election uh if he does in in 2024 with less than 50 percent the last two elections he lost the popular vote by 3 million in uh, 2016 and to biden uh by 7 million um so you know he's not he's going to win because the electoral college makes it possible for him to win not because he's overwhelmingly popular yeah, it's it's always a it's a nuanced argument because I I see it out there on the boards and the and the like is that everyone will say you keep people keep saying that Trump has all this popular support but he doesn't win popular vote but within this group he's it's his, it is his popularity that drives his performance in the GOP primaries his personal charm within that group um, right yeah let me throw something at you if uh, Nikki Haley was the the candidate do you think Jacksonians vote for her? No, I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, I think the people that, that I don't, let me put it this way. I think the turnout would be, uh, down, uh, mm-hmm. in, in, uh, in exurban and rural counties. I think it would fall off. One of the arguments, the, the loser argument, Trump is a loser, mm-hmm. um, completely falls apart if you look at what happened in 2020, uh, because underneath, the statewide and federal races, the Republicans ran the table as never before. Um, the state houses, uh, I mean, state legislatures, state off, statewide offices, Secretary of State, Attorney General, that sort of thing. Uh, it was a landslide for the Republicans. And, uh, and that was, that was driven by increased turnout, uh, in rural and exurban uh counties essentially uh and communities and so is nikki haley does she inspire that kind of uh enthusiasm or devotion or whatever the word is uh no she does not that said uh she's a lot more attractive to suburban america than than trump is relatively speaking uh much less of the quote trump anxiety and quote um obviously trump (laughs) being that she's Nikki Haley um and at the moment has you know has a has a rather wide wide lead over uh president biden um my own view is that uh biden is uh i don't know my my personal view is that biden's uh, chances of reelection are you know 20% you know wasn't that trump's chance in 20 20- 15? No, no, no. He could, I'm, not saying he can't, I'm not saying he can't win. I'm just saying we have not ever, in my lifetime anyway, right. we've never had a candidate, uh, an incumbent uh, president, uh, who has the following data working for him. 80% of the U.S. electorate would prefer that he not seek re-election. I mean, it's just an absolutely stunning statistic. 
and it makes re-election, you know, it, it makes the re-election of Biden, the pitch you should re-elect Joe Biden, uh, impossible. And so the, the framing of the election from Biden's point of view has to be what he says, which is, uh, I may not be the greatest thing, but consider the alternative. And that's what the Democratic campaign is going to be. It's not pro-Biden, but consider the alternative. So Mike Dukakis in 1988, gets 45.7% of the vote. This is something that's always interested me since 2016. There was no one declaring that, you know, America, there's a there's a large group of technocrats waiting to take over America now, you know, because he got this. Trump gets 46.1 in 2016. So in 1988, mm-hmm. 45.7, Dukakis is the loser. And one of history's, let's say, greatest one of those names that just comes out in presidential history uh and it's amazing and then trump gets 46.1 which is four tenths of a percent more of popular vote and it's a revolution doesn't have that broad popular vote well you know this has been said again and again but the 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 electoral college system if you will at this point in time is almost perfectly designed to elect a republican um mm-hmm. you know and and that you see that you know that i remember in 2020 i was on a panel and and i said that i biden had to win by at least six million votes national popular vote in order to win in the electoral college um and i was off by a million you know i was underestimating it by a million he won by more than seven million votes and he barely I mean, barely won uh, the Electoral College. And so given that advantage, you look at the polls, people say, well, you know, Trump and Biden, it's all within the margin of error and so on and so forth. It's within the margin of error. Trump is going to win in the Electoral College because just to take 2020 as an example, Biden wins by seven. And in New York, he wins by two million. In California, he wins by five million. And there's your seven million. Um, yeah, you know, all quote wasted vote end quote, um, and so that's you know that's the thing is people well he'll you know Biden will catch up so on and so forth, it, it, but J- Trump need only lose the national popular vote by six million votes uh, to win in the electoral college. These are these are great points for understanding. I don't think are are really the kind of things being um, being discussed much with this group the jacksonians it does strike me though that it couldn't just have been discovered i I hear what you're saying that he's just has this feral sense of them and he's so good at this group but it had to be the same group that that uh george w bush and carl rove had identified and were going after and even to the loyalty it seemed like i look at 2004 this is essentially a gop group that has been targeted over the years has been, but the, I think the thing that really uh, changed everything in American politics was the financial crisis of 2008-2009. There was a case where uh, the elites took care of the elites. Um, the most astonishing figure uh, about the financial crisis was that exactly one person went to jail. 
Uh, yep. And he was he was a UBS uh, trader, I think. I mean, it was like the poor guy, right? <laughs> of all the people in the world, is it's me. Um, but if you look at the early part of George W. Bush administration, Ken Lay and Enron and and all of those people, there were there were I think um, I can't remember the ex- actual number, but related to financial wrongdoing, there were 700 or 800 prosecutions. If you go back to George H.W. Bush and the SNL crisis, there were uh, 1,100 uh, indictments, uh, most of which ended up with people going to jail, including the famous Charles Keating. In 2008, not 2009, there were no prosecutions. There were no indictments. Mm-hmm. There was, and so it was a classic example of the elites from the point of view of Jacksonian America, if you will. And again, this is overstated. But from from that point of view of ex-urban, especially ex-urban and rural voters, it was like, this, this is unbelievable. Uh, they mm-hmm. cratered the financial system and they're, and they're getting bailed out and they're not going to jail. And uh, that was, I think that was the thing that broke the deal. Yeah, I've heard that before from both left and right. I did an episode back in the past in the 30s, and there was uh, the the various hearings um, in the 30s where they would haul uh, some of these bankers before, at least before congressional committees. And very little of that. I mean, very little of that. It was like, let's just move on and get that economy humming again. Right. <laughs> so, right. And here's, uh, you know, $5 trillion <laughs> to help you go. I mean, the interesting among, I mean, there, there are a lot of things that I'm interested, but the, but the meetings, instead of there being uh, prosecutions, instead of there being, you know, uh, brutal congressional hearings, all of the meetings took place at the Federal Reserve in New York, and all of the limos pulled up, and the people got out, and they had the meetings in secret, and they mm-hmm. got in their limos, and they drove home, and lo and behold, a trillion dollars came uh, to bail them out. That's obviously a wildly oversimplified view, and yes, the financial system was indeed in peril globally, uh, and that there was probably no other option to do uh, what George W. and Bernanke and Paulson decided to do, essentially. But uh, but it was perceived as uh, as uh, insiders taking care of insiders and to hell with the rest of you. Great point. Yeah, not enough done there. You know, one could say, well, they, you know, that should have been a boomerang to Bush GOP that should have been right a mark on them. But I've always noticed that Trump is able to separate um, very well. Of course, he took on Jeb Bush in the 2016 election. He's very, you know, he's able to not really take the man- take the party without taking the mantle of the party. Yeah, I mean, um, the, the, he transformed the party. I mean, if people talk about the Republican Party this and the Republican Party that. Uh, you know, the, the Republican Party, as you and I knew it 20 years ago or 25 years ago, no longer exists. It's mm-hmm. the Trump Party. And then there are these uh, sort of old timers, if you will. It's like old timers day at, at uh, Fenway Park or something um, that are, quote, traditional uh, Republicans or Reagan Republicans or Bush Republicans. Um, but the party, the actual, you know, the makeup of the party is uh, this Jacksonian base and and the party should properly be called the Trump Party. I, I, given that you you were you were at Fox, um, how much what do you think about the OAN and um, 
and uh, Newsmax as threats to Fox News and the business? When Roger was, well, he was chief executive from the beginning, but but uh, as it became more and more successful, he became more and more concerned about a challenge, right? Because mm-hmm. he'd gone from being the challenger to now being the champ. Uh, and so, like all champs, he was worried about what where he might be attacked. And there was a lot of survey research done, and basically somewhere between a quarter and 30% of the Fox News Channel's audience thought that Fox was either too liberal or too moderate. Um, and so Roger was very concerned that that would coalesce around the network and that that would damage uh, his his baby um, and would cause the profits uh, to decline. So Roger did a lot of interesting things. The most, The most sort of uh, underappreciated thing he did was that he signed every imaginable conservative talking head to contracts with Fox News Channel. So John Bolton, future national security advisor to President Trump, was paid $500,000 a year to be a talking head on Fox News Channel. Arguably, you could have done that, you know, cheaper. But Roger's idea was that that John Bolton might be one of the voices of a new conservative network. And so he wasn't going to allow that to happen. And by the time it got to 2016, Roger employed basically everyone who had any stature at all uh, in conservative politics. And so if you if you and I decided, OK, we're going to come after Fox News on the right, uh, we would look around and say every single person is under contract to Fox. So there was that. There's still such demand that, you know, OAN and Newsmax uh, were, in fact, you know, they got some money, they got, you know, they got on channels and so on and so forth. If you go back to the beginning of Fox News Channel, uh, Cablevision at that time, the cable news uh, operator in the New York area, had 3 million customers, right? And so it was an important, you know, distributor. Uh, and the way it works in cable television is that the, the cable systems pay you for your content. Rupert flipped that around and paid Cablevision $10 for every single sub- uh, subscriber. Uh, in order to get on the Cablevision system. And the, the rough math of cable television is that in order to break even, you have to be in 65 million homes. Rupert bought his way into 65 million homes, and then he lost money on Fox News Channel, I think, for eight to 10 years. That's a long time to lose money, particularly if you're a public corporation. But he kept at it. And then the breakthrough, obviously, was Monica Lewinsky. They started printing money. Um, so the, the, the short on that is that it takes an enormous amount of money and it takes enormous patience and, and forbearance to build a uh, an opinion, if you will, uh, news network. And, you know, OAN and Newsmax, they don't have that kind of money. They don't have that kind of perseverance. They don't have that kind of uh, grit and credibility in the markets. Um, so, you know, they had these brief moments where it, it appeared that they might present a challenge, but they were never, ever a threat. Um, and since um, since we have you on, John Ellis, I also want to remind people that um, 
you have the site and you have your own media site, news items, news hyphen items.com. Um, do I have that right? Yeah. Make sure. I'm yep. Right. And, uh, how's that going? Is it, it's going well. I started it, uh, as a, a newsletter. <laughs> it's interesting because in, I started it in 2016 and the idea of it was to make the people at Fox news channel and at the news corp, uh, News properties, which you know, New York Post, Wall Street Journal, etc., sort of aware of of stories that they might not otherwise be aware of, and trends that they might not otherwise see. Um, and the idea was because everybody knew that Clinton was going to be Trump, you might as well, you know, fill the hole, if you will, with other other takes on what was going on. Um, and of course, uh, the, the thing that happened that, that sort of launched it was that Rupert liked it. And so Rupert would say to people, you know, have you read John Snow? Have you read this? You know, did you see what John said about this or whatever? Um, and of course, when Rupert liked it, everybody else had to like it too. Um, and so that gave it its, its, uh, initial push. And then I left in 2019. And I asked if I could take news items with me, and he very generously said yes. And uh, so the next day after I left, um, I started news items. I just kept going and had this small subscriber base, uh, a publishing platform called Substack. That sort of slow and steady wins the race. Um, what's changed in the Substack universe is that we're, when I started, there were... I'm going to say 25 people that were in and around the news business. And now they're like, you more. I mean, there are, I mean, literally hundreds of thousands of sub stacks. So it's harder to get through. Um, but we're having success. We've, we've added uh, political news items for 2024. And my friend Joe Klein and I just started a uh, podcast, which actually just went up about 45 minutes ago. The first oh. one, and we're, we're going to do a weekly podcast together. So that'll be fun. Oh, great. What's the name of that? Night Owls. Okay. Um, Joe stays up late and reads, and I start my work day at 1 a.m. So uh, <laughs> so we're calling it Night, Night Owls. That's great. That's great. Um, well, since, okay, so anyone, uh, uh, people listening will say, okay, okay, you have John Ellis on, so you got to ask him about Especially being a history show, you got to ask about the 2000 election and the uh, the call made at Fox News to call uh, Florida for George W. Bush in 2000. Yeah, you were part of a team that made that call. I mean, any um, all right, first of all, are you are you kind of tired of telling the story these days, uh, or and any thoughts, any perspective? Uh, you know, 23 years now from that, I have I haven't really. Uh talked or thought about every so often a, a you know a reporter or a, or somebody writing a book about 2020 or whatever will call mm-hmm. me and ask me about it um i think the the thing i t- i took away from it is you know we uh, the good news is that I, we weren't the only ones who who called a state the wrong way on the same night right twice mm-hmm. on the same night we we were the last uh to call uh gore the winner uh, in Florida. I remember um, that in nine, you know, in the nine to 10 PM frame. Um, and I was with uh, a group of people who were, uh, let's just say rooting for Gore and, you know, but we're like, we are going to put this on Fox because when they call it Gore won. 
Yeah. yeah. So we, who knew? We were, <laughs> it was weird because the, the numbers we had, you know, most of the exit poll was in and a number of the key precincts were in. Um, and by nine, we called it at 946. We were the last to call it. Um, but the, the, it, it the the system the the models the algorithm showed that 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 Bush literally couldn't win the state of Florida and one of the things when you're running a decision desk you're not picking winners you're you're picking the person you're looking for the person who can't possibly win that's the key is okay, the 99 percent right. uh, chance that uh, George W Bush would lose Florida that's where we got at the time that we got there. Um, and we were late, as I said, in 2000, in two o'clock in the morning, uh, you know, Bush, the, what was out looked Bush to us. Um, and the mm-hmm. debate that we had, and he was ahead, um, at that point, about 25 or 30,000 votes. What remained looked Bush to us. Um, and then, uh, the votes in Volusia County s- switched, um, and that happened after we made the call for Bush. And uh, looking back, um, you know, the, the way we did on big calls, quote unquote, big calls, the group, which was myself, uh, there was a pollster named John Gorman, who was Jimmy Carter's pollster in 1976, working. He was partnered with Pat Cadell at the time. A friend of mine named Arnon Mishkin, who's now head of the Fox News Channel's decision desk, and then there was a woman whose name I forget, but she was an assistant to John Gorman. And on, quote, big calls, end quote, the four of us had to agree, right, that um, it, it, there had to be unanimity on a call. Uh, and certainly there had to be unanimity on a call that was going to call the uh, results of the election. Um, so we all agreed at around, I can't remember, 2000, you know, 2.15 a.m. or something. And we made the call. Uh, and about a minute later, uh, CBS News made the call and then ABC and then NBC. Shortly thereafter, I did an interview with what I thought, a person I thought was a friend of mine from the New Yorker, uh, that came out and there was, there was a lot of drama because I'm related to the Bush family. My mother, the Ellis's and the Bushes, yeah. And my mother was Nancy Bush Ellis. And, uh, so was the Democrats very, I think, very, cleverly made it uh made an issue of my being the head of the decision desk and that this that the fix was in and so on and so forth and people would ask me about it and i would say well you know i never realized i had the power to make cbs call for bush and make nbc call for bush and make abc call for bush but if i did if i did have that power it was fleeting let's put it that way <laughs> you ever talk to anybody at those networks you ever get any that side of the story did they say oh after fox i can't imagine why cbs would have to do it after fox doesn't seem like pressure on a network no like it, the same i assume that the i mean i never talked to warren matowski mm-hmm. and and he who was the head of the cbs unit and i don't you know i don't know but i assume they just saw the same data we did right i mean yeah. it was it bush was ahead what was out looked like bush um and and in retrospect i think the mistake that we made was even if bush had won even if what we had thought uh occurred had had in fact occurred we would have been inside of the rules for a recount 
I think we pressured ourselves when we could have said, you know what, this this result, even if Bush wins by forty five thousand votes, that's in that's inside the re- automatic recount territory. Mm-hmm. So let's just sit back and let, so let that too happen. close to call. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah it's interesting because nowadays uh, everyone's doing it at their home computers with very yeah. elaborate reporting yeah. that comes in. We're all we're all mini John Ellis is now doing our own like calls like, hey. Honey, I think uh, I think Wisconsin's going to to, yeah. to Biden. Yeah. You know, these days, I mean, because because look at the look at the the Dane County's looking good. You know, so we're all kind of doing it. I'm- I will say one other thing: um, the the oddest thing to me about election nights is Fox called Arizona for uh, Biden, right, ten forty seven, something like that, and an hour and a half later, the AP called uh, Arizona for Biden, right? Um, And number one, it doesn't matter if Fox and the AP call it or the others don't. Eventually, the vote will be tabulated and someone will have won and someone will have lost, right? Now, of course, it's in, you know, in terms of the news media, what people understand, you know, believe. And but at the end of the day, it doesn't matter because it doesn't. somebody got this amount of votes and the other person got this amount of votes and that's the result. What's really weird about the modern media culture is, and this is fed not, you know, by Trump who said, you know, this Arizona call is an outrage, you know, Fox, they should go to jail, whatever. <laughs> um, but they said nothing about the AP, which which arguably is more important because it, it reaches a much larger uh, news distribution. It's the one thing I never understood. Calls are the calls, and the networks do it as part of the you know the general uh, obligation they have to in return for the charters that they have. But it, it, you count votes; that's what matters, and. Uh, this emphasis on what what Fox says or what NBC says about the outcome of the election, at some level, it, it has has no bearing on what the final result will be. Well, it's it's the sportsification of it's part of that. It's a it's a it's one of many things that come out of that. Where probably from the nineties, where it's it's a you're counting score. It's a race. Who's going to win the race? He's in the lead. Well, you know, no yeah. one's as as you just said. No one's in the lead. It's just can Dane County get the dang ballots counted already? Right, um, right. And if they counted quicker than the other counties, then the other one would be the lead. Nobody's actually running. It's it's kind of extends to the campaign. It's like who's oh who's in the lead right now or who's in the for all you know, some event could happen tomorrow and um, the campaign could be upended, you know. So yeah. it's um, it's this this you don't get any points like in a game where somebody somebody told me I know I'm now, of course, I'm going on a tangent. But somebody said the other day, like, you know, it's hard if you're going into the fourth quarter and you uh, your team's three touchdowns down. It's hard to win. And I said, well, in politics, you don't have to worry because those three touchdowns are meaningless, whatever. You could be 55% in the polls, and then one day, if an event happens, say a lousy debate performance or a um, or some foreign, look at what happened October 7th. I mean, there are things that can upend all of these politics, 
none of that previous score matters. So the sportsification, which it seems like what you're describing is an element of like people constantly saying, I want to know who's in the lead. And it's even being accelerated by some of the networks that the Kornackiism, you know, like kind of like this, this vote's coming in. If it keeps coming in on this level, then Biden's going to overtake Trump. Like, well, <laughs> you know, again, yeah, there should be more accuracy about what you're actually describing, which is <laughs> votes being counted. But uh, I am you know, and I think you're right, uh, John. I actually think it might be adding to some of the agita, the way that it's presented too. Um, yeah. That it it adds to some of the annoyance about it. I thought my guy was leading, and now they're not. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Hey, well, this has been great. Thanks for coming on, uh, John Ellis. Uh, appreciate you coming on. Uh, my history can beat up your politics. Thank you very much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm.